0: Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and this this is SIPREP. SIPREP, your defence and foreign affairs magazine. Now, in the next 60 minutes, why is it that the MOD always is in the political firing line? We'll try 2.2 billion reasons for a start. Should the military be kicked out of the MOD? Why the battle against Taliban is in Pakistan? The ground rules for the next defence review? Why can't the army afford to pay TA soldiers but still wants them in Afghanistan? Has uh, Mr. Carradich played his final legal card? And is Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, the Madge of Foggy Bottom? And what's all this about the top people smooching? Right, let's start with the MOD and money. Um, Why is it that the MOD appears so efficient. Today, uh, an MOD-sponsored report by Bernard Gray, one of their own, into defence procurement mm-hmm. talks of billions of pounds of wastage. So, what's new? Well, with me is the Daily Mail's uh, former diplomatic editor, John Dickey. John, um, why is it, do you think, that the MOD cannot get it right about specifically particularly uh, procurement? They just don't learn the lessons of the past. This
1: isn't a new story. This has been going on for years and years and years. It goes back to the days of uh, Dennis Healy, as, his uh, as defence So that was, what, 68? 68. It goes back to George Robertson. That was uh, 97. I mean, they've been shown time and time again that they must monitor all contracts and not just wait until it's suddenly discovered that they're, you know, 10 million uh, o- overspent and, uh, and 10 months overdue. I mean... The facts are there.
0: Any competitive business wouldn't allow this to happen. But do you remember, I mean, I'm just just thinking, going back a bit now. I mean, Peter Levine, who was the head of Marks and Marx and Spencer, mm-hmm. and he was brought in in, when would that have been, 82, 83? 80, by 82 by Lord Counton. L- uh, Lord Canton or was it Michael Heseltine? Michael Heseltine. Heseltine. <laughs> Michael Heseltine. William. He said, clean up this, and he mm-hmm. couldn't, because he couldn't fight the system. The system held out against him.
1: Well, that is the trouble. There are so many people that have got a vested interest in having a say in the process of procurement. uh, It just clogs the whole system. And I just can't understand why, after all these years, somebody hasn't been on what they love to call a learning curve. They've seen what's happened, they've seen the
0: mistakes made, why can't they correct them? OK, well, let's, let's get another view on this, because on the line, the BBC's political correspondent and defence analyst, Rob Watson. Um, Rob, the main points of this grey report make pretty gruesome reading, but I bet you're not surprised.
2: I'm not surprised, no. It, was, it has been my happy duty to file endless reports for the BBC every time the Defence Committee it as its, its uh, reports, regular reports on the Ministry of Defence. A- and by and large, I-, I looked back over the last year or so, and pretty much all the reports are about procurement issues, uh, and they all really tend to tell the same uh, sorry tale, uh, and that is this case of people being far too optimistic, whether inside the Ministry of Defence or inside the defence industry, and then eventually you get to this train crash, don't you, where you've got a project that, guess what, is more expensive than everybody thought, so guess what, you have to
0: delay it. But the, the essential of this, of the grey report, is that um, the way, the piece I read, was that the way the Minister of Defence buys new equipment is unaffordable.
2: Absolutely, but it it makes a number of points. But but in a nutshell, what the report seems to be saying is is two clear things, really. Number one, you've got all the the actual services saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. And then it's a kind of a bit of a bottom up process. And at the Ministry of Defence, everyone's saying, yep, okay, okay, okay. And so you get far too many programs commissioned. and, And then you get to this train wreck, and that there's nobody at the top. able to say at an early enough stage, hang on a minute, does this really meet our requirements? Does this fit in to the strategic pattern? And then you've got what you might call a rather prosaic criticism in the report, and that is there just aren't enough people at the Ministry of Defence who know about project management. How do you get a project from, you know, get it off the ground and get it to the end, on time, in budget, and uh, all according to
0: plan? You see, there's one aspect of this, and they were talking about of... um Two point two billion billion pounds a year is being wasted because of the failure to address some of these problems. Well, actually, two point two billion—it's not quite, but it's nearly the cost of the Afghan war at the moment for the British.
2: It's astronomical, and in a way, I think partly because these points are repeated time and again in these various Defence Committee reports, I mean, this shouldn't really come as any surprise. It's almost as if it's locked, lost the power to shock, but, but it is shocking, and as you say, it, it isn't far off the annual cost of running the operation in Afghanistan.
0: Um, just a thought for you. Uh, it's not just the politicians and the civil servants that get the fanging, really. I mean, the, the military uh, ought to take some of the blame.
2: Oh, absolutely. They, 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 get, uh, they get some of the... I haven't heard that one for a while, Christopher, the fanging. <laughs> I like that one. I'm going to have to write that one down.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you will.
2: <laughs> I, I'm going to use that one in future. I'm not sure how well, well it would work on World Service. But but no, you're absolutely right. It's not just the, uh, it, it's not just the politicians and the civil servants. It is very much the, 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 the representatives of the services. I mean, basically, they're accused of, of being kind of gimme, 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 grab it all, and of giving these very unrealistic uh, estimates of how much it's all going to cost. So everybody gets a caning. We can add that to the fanging.
0: <laughs> Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Well, we're joined here in the studio by, from the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, uh, Professor Malcolm Chalmers. Um, what do you make of this grey report? The, the figures may be slightly different, but it's the same as the report you'd get from the House of Commons Defence Committee, from the Public Accounts Committee, from the Auditor-General, isn't it?
3: I think we knew the broad outlines of this, but it 's still pretty startling seeing the numbers in black and white, and which
0: ones impress you <laughs> or do not or, or depress you?
3: The average program is forty percent above its cost its, its initial program initial estimate that 's an awful lot, and over the whole program thirty five billion over budget in over a decade that 's a hell of a lot of money yeah but I think what 's also actually to be fair. Um, Important is that the Ministry of Defence has more or less accepted all of it. It's not questioning uh, the analysis. The only thing it's questioning is one of the recommendations in terms of how this is put right. And they have accepted the case for a regular defence review, which is one of the things we've been lacking since the Strategic Defence Review, goodness, 11 years ago.
0: Yeah. I mean, every year there would be a defence white paper. But mind you... You still had the same problems even when there was a defence white paper. John Dickey was talking Mm. earlier uh, about, uh, if you go back to the 1980s and the, and the, the ministry run by Michael Heseltine when he brought in Peter Levine from Marks and Spencer and said, fix it. And the opposition within the ministry, within the procurement system, meant even Peter Levine couldn't do it. So how did they intend to implement the recommendations
3: <laughs> Very good question and I don't think anybody's got an easy answer and he's quite rightly identified what they call optimism bias as, as at the heart of the problem that there's structural incentives for the people doing the initial cost estimates to, to come in below what is really a realistic cost and you have to have a quite profound change in the management to correct that but what I think you can do and I think, so I'm not convinced that we've got solutions to that what you can do however is in a much more regular basis go through the whole system and review um, knowing what you already then know about estimates rather than year after year letting the the, the problems accumulate. And what Gray actually says is the problem... It's not a problem in the past. It's not a legacy problem. It's a problem that's with existing programmes and every year is added to it, and therefore you have to have a, a proper clean-out of the programme every four or five years to at least keep it within manageable proportions.
0: Yes, well, man, John, do
3: uh, I also
1: don't think you can exculpate the man at the top where the buck stops. The trouble is that over the last decade you've had a succession of low-grade appointments uh, as Defence Secretary, and there have been changes, and everybody has come in with a new broom and not really done anything. Some of them haven't
3: lasted very long. Mm. Indeed. Why is that? No. I think the, f- the fact that some have not lasted long, some have lasted a long time, isn't proportional to the competence. I think those who've lasted the longest haven't mm. necessarily been any better. Uh, but but I Even mean, I the, think current, so the
1: current no. Defence
3: Secretary is number 23 in the list uh, of Cabinet appointments
1: in the old days. I mean, it used to be number, mm. what, the number the 4 thing? or 5. It came after the uh, Chancellor, Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary, now it's, it's well down the list. Bob Ainsworth really doesn't count in Cabinet.
0: Yeah, with and you were saying what thirty-five billion pounds worth of losses? Oh, thirty-five billion overestimated. Mm-hmm. Overestimated. Uh, overestimate the you know, so th- then you, that's, that's got, the that's annual budget. That's right at the mm-hmm.
3: moment. That's right. Yeah. And basically, mm-hmm. because of this incredible overheating, you can't do proper planning because inevitably, mm-hmm. what's going to happen now? Is there going to be have to be a slew of cancellations? Quite often of programmes on which a lot of money has already been spent, which will then be wasted. So that's really not the way to run a railroad. And the break clause is uh, you know, going to be very mm-hmm.
0: expensive. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, of course, the navy got signed up for the carriers very quickly, knowing that the break clauses were so mm-hmm. expensive that nobody could afford to cancel it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see, when the, the Strategic Defence
3: Review was drawn up in 1998, with an ambitious programme of equipment and all sorts mm-hmm. of new things, um, they didn't have a proper equipment budget stretching into the future to which the Treasury and MOD had signed up. So Mm. they're talking about a four-year budget, which makes no sense for long-term equipment programmes, which is committing you to spending for 10, 15, 20 years.
0: Yeah. Um, Malcolm, just one uh, final point. Rob Watson, uh, who was just on from the BBC, uh, and he was saying, well, you know... you." You shouldn't forget the military in all this. It's easy mm. to, to, to turn over the, the ministers and the civil service, the mil, uh, military. It's curious, isn't it? The, I think the MOD, apart from the Foreign Office, is the only ministry in Whitehall that actually, actually has the practitioners working there. Perhaps it's time to sort <laughs> of clear out the military from the ministry and let them get on with the practical side of doing business. Producer capture is not only a problem in defence, you might say
3: the Ministry of Agriculture has had this problem in the past, but yes. It, well, they've got no farmers there, though, have yeah. they? No, but there's certainly some of them influenced by the farming logic. Mm. But, I mean, it, the problem is that the, um, what is, makes individual sense for individual services or individual parts of services doesn't make collective sense for defence as a whole. And the way the system operates is you put people who know about submarines in charge of submarine procurement, and their emotional attachment is to getting the best submarines for a submarine service. And if they have an inclination to underestimate the cost in order to get it through the process, they do so. Uh, and same for aircraft or whatever it might be, army boots. And it, um, and then you end up, of course, not being able to afford it all, and you get into a crisis uh, so I'm not sure you need to get the military out, but you need to find some way of, of maybe having a bit more cross-fertilisation of, of but specialists in different areas.
0: If you kicked out the military, apart, apart from solving some of the problems of recruitment, etc., and, and manpower, mm. kicked them all out back to their units, right? And then mm. left in the MOD were the specialists, and you can have specialists, academics like yourself, mm. in those in the seats. And they say, look, we've got, we've got no tyres. We don't even have to pretend we're purple, This makes sense.
3: I think think there can be a move in that direction. The the problem is getting the the specialists who have a role. Some people understand these things technically better than anybody else because they've done it. Um, You have to have them under much more rigorous interrogation from those who don't have a
0: vested interest in that particular piece of kit. But they're only there two and a half, three years, and then they're gone. That's one of the problems. Working on a project, you take something like the carriers that are wandering around at the moment... They started as through-deck cruisers in the, what, mm. 60s, 70s. Mm. And it took 15 years. to You had about five or six military desk officers. Mm. Uh, the guy that started it as a captain, his wife launched it because he was an admiral. Now, that is one of the problems, I think. Perhaps you ought to have cons- uh, consistency and you haven't got it with military there.
3: And if you're a Navy officer uh, involved in the programme for the carrier, whatever it might be, um, and you're fingered as the guy that stopped it, then your future career in the Navy, you can say goodbye to it.
0: Got to be a Whitehall warrior. OK. Listen, let's talk um, about Afghanistan, because the big story in Whitehall this week, wasn't it? It was the, the, the conditional sending of more troops to Helmand. Um, one of the conditions was NATO additional help. Um, if NATO doesn't agree to sign up for things, then the 500 or whatever it is, a, a battalion, doesn't go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm, it's got to have been some deal anticipated at the meeting in Bratislava of NATO ministers next week. Otherwise, surely the Prime Minister wouldn't have made it one of the conditions.
3: I would have thought so. But the, 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 the elephant in the room here is what the Americans will do, and there's still a, a review going on. Obama has not accepted yet the uh, recommendations made by General McChrystal for a 40,000 increase in American numbers. And, of course, if he does, then that will dwarf anything Mm -hmm. that the Europeans may do by increasing up or down by a few hundred, including ourselves. Um, But the the Americans were very clear yesterday in in response to BBC report, actually, that that Obama has not yet made a decision in that. I think Britain will look more vulnerable if there's no American increase, but I, my expectation will be that Obama will agree to some substantial increase, albeit not as high as he's been asked by the military.
0: Yeah. John, well, this, this wasn't simply a political uh, gesture, was it? I mean, there are lots of conditions. And it does make sense when he says, OK, you've got to guarantee that the guys that are going have got the right equipment. Of course, that, that's uh, very basic.
1: On the other hand... Watching him uh, perform, I thought he was really evasive and uncertain about this. I mean, uh, did he really mean that, for example, the Germans, the Greeks, mm. the Portuguese and uh, the Bulgarians have got to, you know, step up to the plate or not?
0: A lot of them don't actually have the troops. No. Certainly not see, trained. Uh,
1: the Germans, uh, Germans put conditions. They, they won't fly helicopters at night. They, they won't be in a, in a combat area. So you're going to be overloaded with trainers and not enough combat soldiers. It was also a bit odd how he was wanting an effective uh, government able to produce Afghan soldiers and policemen to take care of the the captured territory. Uh, And yet he was also mentioning uh, the need for a united government uh, and the difficulties of the, the election. He was still tending to accept uh, the general thesis that how can
0: soldiers keep fighting there uh, uh, to prop up a government that's so terribly corrupt? Yes. Um, Malcolm, just one just side to all this. Did you notice towards the end of the day that the chief of the defence staff uh, said, uh, well, this seems a good deal, and by the way, we never did ask for 2,000 uh, extra troops, I mean, this seems to have been the sort of last pile of rubbish dumped on General Sir Richard Dannett, isn't it? I mean, he's totally discredited now, even by his uh, own officers.
3: I think it illustrates the problems of trying to conduct these affairs in semi-public when actually you're arguing about what the, the relationship between 700 and 500 and 300 there and so on. Um, and what actually happens is very often um, the military will put up a series of options. yes. And the ministers will come back and question what these options mean. And you end up with something that's none of those options, Mm -hmm. but something slightly different. And actually, one of the things that Gordon Brown announced yesterday was he's going to move some troops out of Kandahar Mm -hmm. province into Helmand province to address the gap there. So Mm -hmm. it's probably that wasn't part of the original Option, but plans. it's only so about a company as well. It? It's I 500, we, it's only 500 I think, men. I think you can you can get mm. too hung up about it. As mm. I said before, the Americans are talking about whether or not to put in an extra 40,000 troops. Mm. Yes.
0: Uh,
3: and we're fiddling around with whether it should be 500 well, or not. Except to, that
0: if, you, if you've got, say, an uh, 11 night brigade and you've got, what, six 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 battalions or, or whatever it is that makes up for it, and you put in another one, that's quite well, a it, percentage hike. Well, oh, it does not. make a difference mm.
3: to what's happening in central Helmand. It is not strategic in terms of the future of Afghanistan right. as a whole.
0: OK. Um, listen, somebody who knows a bit about this, because he's been there, and, and, and in his intervention in the Commons yesterday seemed to leave the Prime Minister at, a, I suppose, a loss for an answer. The question came from the Conservative MP for Milton Keynes North East, Mark Lancaster. Now, Mr Lancaster was a regular officer in the Queen's Gurkha engineers. He's also a serving TA officer, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. and He's on the line. Um, Do you mind going through what you told or asked uh, Mr. Brown? Because so many people wouldn't have heard it.
4: No, I can't understand that. I think really there's a broad concern at the uh, news that the Territorial Army are being asked to have a pretty major, major sort of budget cut uh, towards the end of the year, the, the upshot of which is that some um, training may well be reduced completely for many units. I mean, I'm very keen that this doesn't become a regular army TA sort of issue because it's important to remember that if at the end of the day the output is that the TA is less capable of supporting the regular army on operations, and that will have a major impact to the regular army and members of it.
0: And you, as a um, are you a sort of I, uh, IED specialist, or well, certainly uh, that's part of your as part of your domain, um, absolutely essential to the, the army's operation in Afghanistan.
4: Well, I would like to think so. I think, you know, I'm a firm believer of the one one army concept And having been to Afghanistan, you know, in uniform whilst an MP and several times since as a member of parliament. I mean, I think we all accept it's pretty hard to tell the difference between who's who out there. And frankly, no one really cares as long as everybody's pulling their weight. My concern really is that I think this is a bit of a knee-jerk decision. I think the TA uh, offers excellent value for money. I mean, you get, excuse the expression, a lot of bang for your buck. Um, and the long-term ramifications of this, of this, you know, loss of training is really quite significant. Um, you know, if once people get out the routine of training, they'll find other things to do in their life. If we're not recruiting, um, we won't be retaining people either. And I really am concerned that actually the knock-on impact of this hasn't been thought through.
0: And you were saying um, to the Prime Minister, uh, listen, I've been told I can't do any training until next April. That's exactly the sort of uncertainty that you're talking about.
4: Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, after this week, we don't know when we can do some more training. There is uncertainty. Uh, It's come down through the chain of command. Commanders don't seem to know exactly what they can and can't do. Exercises, which I'm due to go to shortly, are up in the air at the moment. Um, And this is the problem. You know, here we are in the back half of the training year. This is not as if it's been announced for next year when people can plan. It's all literally just been thrown up in the air.
0: Right. Is there a weakness here that a a TA soldier... Uh, as you say, is one army when you're there, but you're not detached to a regular unit when you return to the UK, and so uh, you haven't got this continuity that you would have, say, with training with the unit to which you were attached. Attached.
4: Well, that is a problem sometimes. I mean, I I can only really speak from my own experience in sort of the EOD world, where within the Royal Engineers, we have 3-3 and 101, and actually quite a lot of joint training goes on. So you tend to know the personalities on both sides of the fence, but that's a relatively small world. But, you know, I do think we need to look at this problem. And what would really worry me is if it was viewed as if, well, the regular army's struggling, so let's cut the TA, because actually, I think most people recognize that with Without, you know, albeit the limited support that the TA offers the regular army on on operations, it's only going to put even greater pressure on the regular army, meaning that people are going to be going back to Afghanistan on an even more frequent basis, which is why for, you know, we have to find savings, but for £20 million, I'm not sure it's the best £20 million to save.
0: Mr Lancaster, thank you very much indeed. Let's get back to the... Sorry, John Dickey. There there is a point there that
1: before Mr Lancaster's question, it was actually raised by David Cameron. And again, Mm. Gordon Brown seemed phased by it because Mm. David Cameron cited a a constituent's problem of not being able to get training next year, uh, and he enlarged that into a general question so that by the time Mr Lancaster's question came up, Brown should have been more um,
3: closely briefed. Well, certainly the Secretary of State was sitting alongside him. Malcolm? I mean, I think it illustrates some of the problems that are resulting from what Bernard Gray identified. Because the defence budget is overcommitted and badly managed, uh, we're ending up saving what we can rather than what we should. £20
0: million. Pounds.
3: And it's peanuts, of course, yeah. but it's, it's being saved, I suppose, because it's something that yeah. can be cut quickly, while some of these um, overheated equipment programmes cannot be. Yeah, yeah.
0: Should we go back to this... Um, uh, what's been going on in, in Pakistan today. More bombings, uh, suicide bombings. Uh, and the word from Islamabad is that the Pakistan army is about to advance its campaign into the tribal region of South Waziristan against Taliban. Um, what does this mean? I mean, we had to, in, the, in the Swat Valley... Mm-hmm. The, the campaign, John mm-hmm. uh, that seemed to be reasonably successful but going into uh, Waziristan uh, is, is quite a different thing isn't it?
1: Much more difficult uh, you know, back in the days of the Raj uh, these warrior tribes of Wazir uh, were a tremendous problem and the British had to mount all sorts of punitive expeditions I remember my student days you know, going through all sorts of documents about the difficulty of, of combating these people in the northwest frontier now, uh, you know, that they were absorbed into Pakistan, uh, they've been a tremendous thorn on the flesh of, of the, the government.
0: So, uh, also, Malcolm, uh, Prime Minister Brown was talking about taking the war against al-Qaeda mm. into this region of Pakistan, wasn't he, uh, where Osama bin Laden mm. is supposed to be. I mean, it emphasizes yet again the war is actually in Pakistan, or certainly in uh, the federally yeah. administered tribal areas, which is what we're
3: talking about. That's right. I mean, of course, the argument for being in Afghanistan is partly because because we are there, <laughs> Al Qaeda was forced to go over the border, and if we weren't there, then they may return. And we can't go into Pakistan. But we can't go into Pakistan. Of course, the Americans um, are, with some effectiveness, using drones, uh, unpiloted aircraft, to target Al Qaeda leaders, and I think there are certainly quite a number of reports suggest not only that they've killed quite a number of them. But also, it's making them more nervous. It's making them harder for them to communicate. And I think that's been quite effective. Uh, but it's not getting bin Laden.
0: No, it's not getting bin Laden, but it's, getting, it's putting the, uh, uh, Pakistan uh, under enormous pressure, isn't it, from, from the Americans who presumably said, look, we'll help you in this. Uh, I mean, this is the... This is what's not being said publicly. And if they do that, then there is a huge difficulty between Pakistan's military and Pakistan's political.
3: There is. And the Americans are not popular in Pakistan. Uh, and Pakistani public opinion counts mm-hmm. for a lot in this, not only, not even primarily in the, the border regions, but in the core areas. And one of the most worrying things about some of the recent bombings is they're actually in Punjab yes because there is an insurgency developing in punjab and if that gains momentum then you're talking about the heart mm-hmm. of pakistan
0: and they uh, the attacks today also in lahore and this is the most important. I mean, this, what do we call Lahore? The cultural city, is so The it, second most important city in the yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. and if they're getting into that, it's demonstrating that they can actually do it, and that's the difficulty. It's a symbolic blow that on the eve of this great surge
1: uh, by the Pakistan I army, mean, they're being shown to be powerless to stop, uh, and so getting right into the heart of police stations and military headquarters.
0: Yeah, and so this... this, this when Mr Brown says that the battle is actually on those borders... Indirectly, he's saying um, that is where the war is not in Afghanistan. That's a holding war. Yes, I, I think the the
1: core of, of the uh, the problem is it's going to be resolved in Pakistan, not, not uh, by Helmand province security.
0: OK. Let's have a look yeah. at any other business. <laughs> uh, missiles galore in coming out of or going up from uh, North Korea at the moment. Mm-hmm. Nobody seems to be particularly bothered, including the Chinese, Malcolm. They say, that's all right. You know, that's not going to stop anything. They're just doing it. I think uh, to be too
3: openly bothered with the North Koreans only encourages them. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> that we have this vicious cycle that uh, um, when we start uh, not giving them enough attention, they, they explode another weapon mm-hmm. or fire some more missiles. And uh, one reading of what North Korea is doing is, in the end, they cannot give up their arsenal entirely because mm-hmm. then they at the mercy of the international community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they have to show some level of restraint in order to keep getting international aid. So we keep going around these circles Uh, without uh, much uh, output from it, and and, and it's very worrying. But I think, in the end, there won't be an exit from this until there's either regime change or a profound change in the policy of the regime in that country.
0: Right. John, um, the former Bosnian Serb leader, Radovan Karadzic, Mm. um, what's happening, he's, I thought he was supposed to be on trial by about the end of the month for the criminal tribunal, He's lost his appeal, hasn't he? Well, they were trying to claim that there
1: was there, there, no evidence of, of the severity of the crimes, the 11 crimes in which he was uh, charged and that uh, uh, the idea that he could be accused of uh, war crimes well, was simply not a consequence of the facts, but of course this has failed, so instead of being a long, drawn-out case, uh, you're now going to get down to the
0: heart of the matter. And we're still waiting, Malcolm, for General uh, Mladic, the other guy that the warrant's out for. Mm. I mean, you know, somebody knows where he is, surely, and they're just not picking him up. Well, at this rate, he's going to die of old age, isn't he? Mm. I mean, it's it's incredible. It takes a long time. It's hard
3: to believe there aren't people in Serbia. In the Serbian security forces, if not in the government, who know where he is?
1: Well, it's said that they know where he goes for a drink from time to time, and Hmm. you know know, what football match he watches
0: on television. Right. I want to talk about Madge, Uh, Madge (laughs) of the diplomatic world. I apologise if that Madonna Hmm. reference to Hillary Clinton. Um, the United States Secretary of State uh, mm-hmm. um, b- offends, but there is something of the hard candy about her, isn't there, John? Uh, oh, yeah, during her. I'm, I'm, several not, I'm
1: not with you on this. I think you've been over generous <laughs> no. d- to the lady. Um, but which one? <laughs> to Hillary. Um, yeah. I mean, you're elevating her to a status she doesn't at the present deserve. But she's I mean, a superstar. She's not. A, she's not in the same league as, for example, John Foster Dulles or George Shultz. Um, Surely she's bigger than this. I mean, when did you get the sort of coverage for George Shultz or John Foster Dulles? John Foster Dulles is on the front pages of papers every day on television stations too. But, no, she went to Moscow. What did she achieve there? Nothing at all. uh, She made some noises in Belfast and... uh, encouraged them to come together. But again, it was a photo opportunity. Now, I think you've got to wait a bit longer before you give
0: her another uh, Nobel Peace Prize.
1: Well, I, mean, I wasn't <laughs> going to
0: do that, but I, I think the idea of Madge of, uh, I like the term, anyway, Madge of Foggy Bottom. I should explain, Foggy Bottom is really is the postal address of the American um, State Department. State Department. Um, there is something about it. She is a star, and everybody, uh, Malcolm, sort of sits there and says, I wonder, in fact, if she's planning to run... For president. She says she's not, of course, but then, as another superstar said, um, she would say that, wouldn't she?
3: Well, you can never say never in politics, and who knows if Obama falls under a bus or something, but it it doesn't seem very likely, and uh, uh, if Obama doesn't entirely tank. And he will be the mm. candidate next mm. time round. So you're talking about whether she might be a candidate in primaries in six years' time. Ah, man. she
1: will Mag. be, what, nearing 68?
0: Yes, mm. yes, yes. Well, some people are. OK, mm. it's coming up to half past the hour and you're listening to SITREP, your Defence and Foreign Affairs magazine. Um, me, Christopher Lee. And don't forget, you can listen again to SITREP whenever you want or podcast by going to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Simples. Um... And now to thinking aloud. Uh, it's our weekly sit-rep round table on some of the big issues that need sometimes a sideways look. Um, as you know, with me in the studio, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and from the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, and we're joined on the line from the University of Bradford's Department of Peace Studies, Professor Paul Rogers. Now, yesterday, um, here in London, the RUSI in Whitehall conference was held uh, discussion to discuss some of the big items that should determine the shape of a future defence review. Now, let's look for the next 25 minutes or so at some of those issues, domestic security, smart power, politics and obligations, for example, how policy changes if you're a member of NATO. Um, Paul Rogers, one of the first items on the agenda, domestic security, it's the fundamental task of government, isn't it? And that's the protection of citizens.
5: Yes, very much so, both internally through the provision of a policing, prison and justice system and more internationally in terms of the protection of citizens either overseas or within its own country from exterior threats. Uh, And that is very much what uh, defence is about in terms of domestic security. It means that it tends to be relatively short term and to look at discernible threats which are reasonably clear cut. Uh, In general terms, defence reviews are rather less good at looking at the really broad longer-term international trends, particularly when you require relatively near-term action to prevent longer-term problems. That's an area where defence reviews commonly are not so effective.
0: Um, Malcolm, that sort of sets out really why uh, the thinking before we get to the defence review, which is next year, Mm. is such a complex Um, A a complex argument. I mean, no one is going to agree. So how do you expect to get a document that makes sense (laughs) Uh, to cover all the issues? I mean, simple things such as dependence on the global security environment, whatever that means now. The government has produced something called a national security
3: strategy, which is trying to give the the sort of broad picture which, which Paul was talking about which I think was a, a useful framing document. But, of course, it covers everything from global inequality to climate change to organised crime to terrorism. Uh, and for most of those problems, the military is only one small part of the solution. So the problem when you have a, de- a defence review actually, at the end of the day, has to decide what capabilities you can risk giving up and which ones you a- actually have to have. Uh, so it's quite a small part of the overall security picture, but you have to have that decision. The Conservatives have said that if they're elected, they will have a security review rather than a defence review. But it's not entirely clear what they mean by security. And it will have to be defined narrowly enough so you can actually have a proper review of it in terms of the practicalities of what you do. Will it the intelligence services? Will it include the prisons and uh, uh, serious organised crime? None of that is clear. Uh, but the basic point is right. And that was something that came up very strongly in our Conference yesterday, that defence has to be seen in a broader context, uh, and the idea of smart power I think came up there. In terms, explain of to the listeners who don't know what smart and soft power. I'm is, or Very hard. Uh, I entirely understand. I'm not sure if I understood what smart power was until this week. Uh, but what smart power I think means you're one of the think tanks. Well, <laughs> I know, but it wasn't my idea. Um, smart power uh, is the idea of joining up defence, diplomacy and aid, essentially. It's the different arms of government getting involved and not simply relying on one instrument at a time. And um, one of the military speakers actually at the conference um, suggested that while the SDR 10 years ago uh, put a lot of emphasis on jointness between services, uh, this review should put a lot of emphasis on jointness between different government departments because they haven't joined up enough. And we've realised in Iraq and Afghanistan Uh, the way in which the military can only play part of the role, but everybody else needs to be involved much more than they have
0: been. I mean, John Dickey, uh, the Foreign Office has talked about this for years and recognized it as well. Yes, but and nothing new, uh, but it was
1: interesting that um, this time when uh, Gordon Brown went to the United Nations Summit session, he took with them not just uh, David Miliband, but he took uh, Douglas France Alexander, X-ray. the Department uh, for International Development, and they were both engaged in conversations uh, multilaterally within that uh, arena. But no, you're quite right, it's been going on for so long. It's amazing that they haven't really coordinated uh, the whole examination more thoroughly. And it's equally extraordinary that we haven't had a strategic defence review since George Robertson in, mm. in 97, 98. I mean, you know, the nine uh, eleven uh, tragedy of 2001 uh, occurred without any demand
0: to review the whole strategic uh, context of that. Um, Paul, there, there is something here with the I- in, in the idea... Um, that everybody knows, and everybody's been, well, a lot of people have been talking about the review and different thinking for, I think, three or four years now. Mm. But the system mm. to try and get it going is very complex because it involves so different uh, different interests.
5: If you're going to have a pretty wide review, the, the kind that Malcolm uh, was saying and Join pointed to, then yes, it becomes very complicated. You also have the issue of the electoral cycle. And these things tend to happen fairly early in a particular electoral cycle. But I think there are other issues here. This review is also going to be overshadowed by the problems of public spending. And it happens to coincide with some pretty big projects which need to come on stream in the next five to ten years, and which are going to be very difficult to fulfil. Things like the aircraft carriers, try and them to one or two others uh, alongside the commitments that Britain has. I think there's a wider issue as well, and that is essentially that uh, you find that some of the military think tanks like DCDC DC, down at Shrivenham do some very interesting work on analyzing long-term security threats. Malcolm mentioned some of the things like migration, um, the rich-poor divide, which is widening, the what is now going to be the massive problem of climate change. Uh, and have, the analysis is really very interesting. In fact, some of it could almost be done by Greenpeace, you might say. But when you go to what are we going to do about it, For absolutely natural reasons, these are military personnel who are looking at it from the point of view of what you were saying at the start, the protection of the citizens. So their role basically is to ensure that the country remains stable and protected in an uncertain, fragile and perhaps rather dangerous world. It is not their job uh, intrinsically to say, well, what's the kind of national policies to which Britain should contribute, which might help uh, avoid these major problems? Uh, In other words, from the military's perspective, they don't see it as their job inevitably to tell the politicians you've really got to do something seriously about climate change. And this is where I think the idea of a much more broad security review, which brings these issues in, whether it's done by the conservatives, uh, Labour, whoever's in charge of it, its uh, hung parliament, it really does need to be done and done in that way, which I think has not been done before. The national security strategy begins that, but it doesn't go very far.
0: Uh, John Dickey, um, and, and, and Malcolm, but John mm-hmm. first, um, what we're really talking here is that uh, great concepts about a defence review, a strategic view, review, etc. But until we sort out how the United Kingdom sees its global role, none of these things make sense. It's almost as if you're you're doing it for ten years ago. That is the paramount issue What sort of role do we want to be seen
1: to be playing, not just in five years or ten years, but in 20 years' time? I mean, do we accept that we have obligations globally? For example, if we get another situation, such as we found in Sierra Leone, where we had to send British troops to stabilize the situation, are we going to be able to afford that in future? I mean, this is a time of great economic difficulty, and I think both parties, um, both the Conservative and the Labour parties, accept there have to be significant changes of how money is spent and where it is spent, and are we getting the best value for money. It's not just a question of, do we build two enormous carriers of 65,000 tonnes, the first, you know, large carriers for 65 years, but, you know, can we afford to... Uh, spend the money on what goes with them, like the uh, the F-35 fighter strikes. I mean, um, these are enormous economic problems that have to be resolved.
0: Around that, if you add all the destroyer escorts and Mm -hmm. submarines, you're actually building a navy. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) then you have to say, well, that comes back to what the United Kingdom's role is. Do you need such a navy? And so a lot of the issues, uh, Malcolm, seem to be beyond what we are having a debate about in one part of Whitehall and that's where do we want to be in, let's say, as John says, 20 years' time and another part of Whitehall, your side of Whitehall, just coincidentally, Mm. where they're saying, well, we've got to have the carriers and we've got to have things that we need to do.
3: Yes, and you've got to ask those prior questions before you can make any sense of the carrier debate as John was was saying absolutely rightly um, I think what I would make a distinction between things which are uniquely national interests which nobody else is going to do coping with another Northern Ireland mm. outbreak of violence for example nobody else is going to do that we've got to prepare for that possibility or dealing with um, control of our own airspace or uh, whatever it might be sea um, and land um, but um, beyond that Most of our security uh, interests are met primarily through alliances by working with others, other Europeans, and working most of all with the United States, potentially through the the UN and others. Um, And there is a question of what's the reasonable uh, contribution that the UK can make to that? We would not be in Afghanistan today if the Americans were not there. Hmm. however important an interest
0: And we it wouldn't is. have gone to Iraq by we ourselves.
3: Have, of course we wouldn't gone to Iraq by ourselves. Sierra Leone is the exception rather than the rule, and that was really very small scale. Uh, that's the reality of the world we're in today and the reality of the size we are as a country. And it's actually quite positive, because one of the positive features of today's world <laughs> is that we have so many allies, and most of the most the richest countries in the world are still our allies. And long we're getting continue. More? And we're getting more allies as, as NATO
0: expands, as the
3: EU expands. Exactly, exactly. So strengthening international cooperation is very important. International cooperation will not work unless everybody does their share.
1: comes to the question of the price of being at the top table. I mean, if you decide to downgrade the trident and think 20 billion is far too much, as the Liberal Democrats are suggesting, um, can you still have the right of veto on the top table of the
0: major powers? mm Paul, I mean, taking up the point of uh, a Trident, if we have to say we've got to judge why we want to be, what the United Kingdom's role is going to be in, let's say, 20 years' time, mm-hmm. uh, difficult to sort out because of different alliances, but there are certain things you can do which will certainly give you an idea of what you want to be doing. One of them, for example, and I'm not advocating here, but one of them, for example, would be to say, right, we're coming out of the nuclear weapons uh, Uh, systems.
5: You could certainly do that. Um, Politically, I think it's pretty unlikely in the reasonably short or middle term. There are ways in which the existing Trident system could be scaled down and its replacement really much more of a minimal force at a lot less cost, and that revolves really around whether you're going to build uh, the new full-size ballistic missile submarines. So there are middle options there. And In some ways, I think the, the carrier decision is even more interesting because we're talking about very large warships for a much longer range, more potent strike capability than the Invincible class. I think I would agree very much with Malcolm that Sierra Leone was the exception, partly because, frankly, HMS Ocean was available at the time. But the key thing is that, again, as has been said, it does revolve around Britain's role in alliances, And this is where I think in some ways it's going to be partly influenced by what happens in Afghanistan given what has already happened in Iraq because I think there is a much greater crisis about what NATO does stemming from what is becoming really almost disastrous in Afghanistan at the present time. And that's going to really influence the extent to which NATO remains even an effective alliance.
0: There is is, therefore from going on from what you're saying uh, another question. And that is given the experiences of Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. that may decide something towards our future role, uh, global role, because future governments may say, we're not doing this again.
5: I think that's certainly possible. There, there is this, the argument now, which is getting the kind of um, attention which it was impossible to get for it um, seven or eight years ago, that in fact the very strong military action to the 9 11 atrocities while understandable, was actually the wrong one, and it should have been seen from the start as a very vicious transnational criminal activity by people motivated by a warped version of one of the world's great religions, but necessarily should have been seen in those terms to treat them as a kind of global enemy, elevated them to a status which, in fact, made matters worse. Now, that suggests that in some ways Again, we have to look much more broadly at security and not rush to the idea that military solutions are preeminent. And I think the experience not just in Afghanistan but also in Iraq has tended to add credence to the idea of being more critical. That does have implications for defence policy as a whole.
0: Malcolm, uh, sorry, can can I just ask this one for Malcolm, John? Um, We bring in here, don't we, um, um, the argument that we're talking about it in terms of for example, your think tank governments, the military themselves. What about the public perception? How much influence might
3: that have in the future? I think public perception is an enormous influence, particularly on politicians who have to be elected by that public. And one of the striking characteristics of the last few years is that public admiration and support for the armed forces and what they're doing has never been higher. Uh, but public support for the policies which they're being asked to pursue has been much less in relation to both in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's do important. Th- I, I, mean, I, d- I don't think we've seen a period mm-hmm. since perhaps the Suez in 1950s in which there's been that degree of disconnect between the public and what the armed forces are being asked to lay down their lives for. And I think the result, as I think Paul said, um, will be that um, we, we will see out Afghanistan one way or another, I think, but um, there will be much more reluctance to get involved in any other operation which might lead to a similar sort of, of, of quagm- quagmire. Yes, I was just John, going uh, to make
1: the point that foreign intervention will be under much closer scrutiny in future because we've only to look at the latest poll uh, on Afghanistan that one third of the British public want British troops withdrawn now and uh, a fairly large percentage want... Uh, an exit strategy with a deadline set, so that if it were to happen that uh, a crisis arose again, I think there would be a lot of discussion. And it, of course, it wouldn't be undertaken in the same way as the Iraq War was undertaken without a, a proper vote. There would be sanction required from the House of Commons.
0: And also, we have the the very real possibility, and I think it was you, Paul, who started, talked about it, in the financial restrictions. globally, not just the United Kingdom, and therefore it's not just what the United Kingdom thinks it ought to be doing in 20 years' time, it's what everybody else thinks they ought to be doing, and and therefore we have to sort of second-guess where we'd fit into
5: that. I think that's true, uh, and that's true for Alliance members. Uh, We may well find some more restrictions than we've anticipated in the American defence budget over the next couple of years, basically for fiscal reasons. But Britain is in this particular position of being a pretty high defence spender, one has to remember that, but also, as was mentioned earlier, having some very big projects coming at precisely the time that's going to be the best part of five years of difficulty in public spending. That, I think, in some ways will concentrate in the mind mm-hmm. and may indirectly have quite a lot of influence on the way that the defence or the security review goes. Uh, What Malcolm was saying, I think, is spot on and really intriguing. This discontinuity between, you know, high support for the British troops, particularly the British army, but far less support for what they're being asked to do. This disconnect exists in the public mind. You can support the troops, but you don't support the war. That really is pretty rare.
0: There's another side um, which is very difficult to, again, to guess, and that is uh, Iraq came up, it was an issue... One way or another, we went. Afghanistan, an issue. One way or another, we went. It is sometimes difficult to see where another big issue like that could occur. So I say sort of glibly, we won't do Iraq or Afghanistan again. But what about something like energy security? That could be something which is is totally different. You're not fighting necessarily um, terrorism or or a dictator.
5: Yes, the energy security thing I, I think is quite seminal. One has to remember over 60% of all the world's oil is found in and around the Persian Gulf. Mm. And Russia, Qatar, and Iran have, what, 55% of the world's natural gas. You have this extraordinary concentration uh, at a time when Britain is now no longer so fully helped by North Sea oil and is important, importing more and more gas. But again, this links in with the other issue. Yes, we have this huge dependence on fossil fuels, uh, coal, oil, and gas – But at the same time, we have the knowledge which seems to be rising almost by the week of how serious climate change is becoming. I mean, the latest report from the Hadley Centre a fortnight ago, when you look at it, frankly, it really is quite scary because uh, the whole thing does seem to be accelerating. So there's going to have to have to be a really major rethink on energy security. And it's probable that people will come to the view that we've got to become far less dependent on fossil fuels, especially oil and gas. For climate change reasons, which means also that progressively over the next 10 years, areas such as the Persian Gulf will actually recede in geostrategic importance as far as Britain is concerned, even as they rise as far as the US and China is concerned.
0: But we take this, Malcolm, to another stage with the let's keep on energy security. Where we're thinking of big global terms, like where we're going to be in 20 or 30 years' time, if I were in the Navy lobby, for example, I can say, you know, you. Just think about energy security. You can't get rid of those carriers. You can't do things like this. because uh, We're the guys you're going to need in future. So just write it into the budget.
3: Well, I've heard that not not a few times from naval colleagues. Uh, and there is some degree of truth in it. But you know, um, energy security in relation to the Middle East, which we, which is what we're, we're talking about, can only be achieved by international cooperation. The UK is not going to uh, protect the, the Gulf by itself. It's going to... Doing it with others, and indeed, I think it's going to be doing it with the Chinese and Indians <laughs> as well as our traditional allies, because those countries are becoming richer, but they're also becoming more and more dependent on Middle East mineral supplies. So we need to have that. It's most of all going to be a political thing. So they the, the Chinese John. are
1: moving into Africa in such large mm. degrees, not just Sudan with that pipeline. We don't want to go Sudan. there, do we? We don't want to go there. But it was interesting last week when the protocol was signed in Geneva, ending the. Um, Armenia-Turkey uh, dispute which has gone on for several generations. The great thing was the welcome... Since the
0: First World War? From, yes,
1: uh, from the so-called massacre of the Armenians. The interesting thing to me was the way the Western leaders were so enthusiastic about it because it, it enables the oil supplies to come from Eastern Europe via Turkey and avoid any uh, sort of blackmail that the Russians
0: might do again as they did to Ukraine recently. Paul, is this, this thing about China and India. Because another reminder, it's not what we think we want to be doing. It's we're, we're going to be far more influenced what other people are doing.
5: Yes, we certainly are. Incidentally, on what John was saying, we have to remember that the other problem there is the ongoing Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Indeed. And indeed. if that between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan can be solved, then yes, that really is yep. a major, major change. But we're some way from that at the moment. I think China is fascinating. I think that one thing that isn't fully appreciated is the speed with which China has become energy import dependent. Only 15, 16 years ago, China was completely self-sufficient in its oil supplies. Now in 2009, it imports half of all it needs. It's an astonishing change. And I think not just Africa goes a long way to explaining the very extensive deals that the China, China has done, both with Iran as well as Saudi Arabia. And uh, India, I think, is coming up, but China is the one which is really where it's at at present.
0: Malcolm, I mean, all this talk, we're, we're really thinking in, as if we were great power status, don't mm. we? I mean, because we've got nuclear weapons, mm. we're a permanent member of the Security Council, etc. Um, but <laughs> truthfully, if you, if you looked at the majority of the 28 members of NATO, for example, most of them can't even rustle up uh, a company of foot soldiers to go to Afghanistan. But they don't seem to be... Too bothered about that. Are we really, really having to get to a point where we've got to say, listen, a complete rethink. We'll do London duties, Buckingham Palace, a few things like that, and that's going to be about it. Although then we have to say to ourselves, well, 90% of our our supplies come by sea. Well, we maybe need to give geography
3: more of a, a place in our policy and history less.
0: Yeah, is, well, we only learn geography
3: when we go to war. Is that not true? <laughs> That's true. But maybe we should think about geography more. We are a European state, but we're also an island state, which gives us some particular uh, dimensions, which, which you know, Switzerland or Austria does not have. Uh, but we're not primarily, a, a, we're not a power with a global empire as we were in World War II or World War I. So we need to be thinking primarily as a European state which shares interests with Europe but has some particular aspects of what we do which are rather different. And I I think we shouldn't underestimate Britain's role. We are an important middle power, but we're not a superpower. And as China becomes one, we will not be one and we will fall behind. One of the interesting things which Europeans get very het up about recently is all this talk of a G2 of US and China. And people ask in Europe, well, where are we? And, unless Europe has a voice there will not be a G3, there will be a G2 in the world.
1: I think it's difficult for many politicians to turn their back on history they see uh, the evolution of empire into commonwealth and they see all sorts of historical associations that sometimes erupt into obligations. For example, if Mugabe uh, disappears and his generals decide that they're going to take over, we might be faced with an enormous problem of withdrawing a large number of British subjects who were urged to go to the then Rhodesia
0: just after World War Two. But that's rather like Sierra Leone, something or, or Falklands, that's mm-hmm. something that's up to us, not part of this global idea mm-hmm. of what we should be doing. Is that right, Michael?
3: Yes, th- I think that's right. There are some residual obligations. Falklands mm-hmm. is another one which, uh, if we don't take care of them, will blow up in our face, potentially, as, mm-hmm. as happened in 1982. Mm-hmm. But they can't drive our policy. They are things we have to do, but they're not central to what we are, as they were in the 1950s.
0: Paul, a final thought. If, you were, if you're thinking ahead, say, to a strategic defence review or whatever it's going to be, is there one thing you would say to the people running it, do this, and not so much you'll save money, but do this, and you really will be rethinking uh, British defence?
5: Oh, two words, climate change, no question. I mean, that is going to be the big issue, along with the socio-economic divisions over the next 40 years. I have no doubt about that, and that really has got to be integrated into any understanding of how you keep a country secure.
0: Paul, thank you very much indeed. Um, Malcolm, can you think of one big issue, maybe two issues? I mean, maybe climate change, or is there something else that would, if you said to them, listen, do that, and we really will have to have a proper rethink rather than just a you know, emergency tailoring operation?
3: I think the first thing I would do is is have a much clearer idea of what we're trying to get as a nation out of the relationship with the United States. Uh, We've been too ready in recent years to to believe that simply doing as much as we can is what impresses the Americans and not thinking enough about what we're trying to do in, in that relationship and trying to shape the Americans and sometimes being willing to say no if we don't think an action is right. Um, And related to that, of course, is the relationship with Europe. I think we've got to have a more mature defence relationship with the rest of Europe, particularly with France. Climate change, I think, is one of a number of areas which are uh, are leading to uh, state weakness. Uh, in, in developing countries. Um, I don't think it's got a direct relationship with defence provision, but it has got an indirect one and it, it reinforces the point that we're living in, a, in an insecure world in which problems will get worse rather than better.
1: John, the one big issue you'd look at? I think I would agree there that we have to concentrate more on establishing a proper relationship with Europe, accepting that the so-called special relationship is over and therefore to integrate itself more closely. But there's one factor in the whole equation that we've missed so far, and that is the the trade union part. I mean, if you start changing the nature of our commitment in in supplies and procurement, you're going to lose an awful lot of jobs. The GMB have warned, for example, that 10,000 jobs will be lost if we lose the carriers.
0: Mm. Right. Now, finally, finally... Um, it's been bothering me all week, I have to say this, and Fast (laughs) Eddie's mum wrote to me and said, what are we doing about it? What are we Mm. to make about all the kissing that's going on, John? I mean, they're basically your lot, I mean, the politicians and the Mm. diplomats. We have um, Prime Minister Brown and Sarah Brown, Mm. full frontal smackers at Labour Party Mm. conference. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Mr Cameron and Mrs Cameron smooching at Manchester. Then there was Madge of foggy mm-hmm, bottom mm-hmm. this week, do you see kissing Martin McGuinness yes. <laughs> what
1: is this john well it 's all the fault of the French. You see mm-hmm. they started it all and, and S- <laughs> sarkozy he 's a great romanticist I mean he puts his arms around any woman he finds, far too many accounts to of French public. But not yes, as much as Mr. Berlusconi, apparently. Berlusconi, yes. The fact that he's supporting uh, Tony Blair but, for president of the EU would worry John, me a little bit. they're We're not foreigners. Well, no, but, I mean, you've got uh, <laughs> your, your friend Hillary coming in and, and giving a big hug to Gordon Brown. Well, that was because he'd been in the papers with having his eye problems, and she felt he needed some comforting. But, uh, no, I like it here. I mean, when I come into the studio, I get a kiss on both cheeks from that lovely lady on the other side of the window.
0: Mary and the Hutt doing the kissing mm-hmm. again. Now, listen, that's enough of that. Come on, Malcolm. <laughs> but what is it about this, there is something odd and there's something sort of grating almost about sort of the, uh, the, the, the kissing between leaders. You expect a bit more than that, don't you? Well, it does seem very un-British, at least the way we were brought
3: up, but I, th- I suppose things are changing and maybe we're becoming a bit more European. So. You're not talking about men doing this. To, uh, to well,
1: do this, exactly. you see, this is my point. It's, it's exa- <laughs> no,
0: seriously, this is... That will this be a, next. <laughs> this is, well, I don't know. This is exactly my point um, because uh, um, Condoleezza Rice... Very much a lady. Mm. She didn't go around kissing people, but Madge comes here, yeah. and she wants to kiss everybody. Yeah. And I think well, if you're married to it,
1: Bill Clinton, it does change your aspect <laughs> <laughs> towards the, the closeness of contact with people,
0: I think. Yeah, can you kiss but not inhale? <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I, what I'm really getting at, aren't I, and that mm. is the, the stature of... The stature of the uh, the people that are now representing us and fighting for our corners, etc., mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be as great as once it was. Uh, I mean, apart, uh, ignore the manners of the kissing.
1: No, I think that's true. The, the big figures have gone. Have gone certainly domestically in our, in our political system. Gone internationally too. I mean, you have to go back uh, a series of decades before you find the, the goals. The, the Roosevelt's, uh,
0: Jack Kennedy's... She wouldn't have kissed uh, de Gaulle, would she? No. I mean, no she's no, she's no, no. not tall enough. Nobody could like, get yeah.
1: up that height. No, no, no.
0: Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, well, I'm going. I mean, we're all going. That's it for this week. Um, i just with handshakes. My thanks to John Dickey, Malcolm Chalmers, and to Paul Rogers. who was so overcome, he couldn't discuss kissing. Join us here on Sit Rep next Thursday at 4 o'clock UK time, or you can listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfps.com forward slash separate. Simples. But for now, from me, Christopher Lee, and Mary, who is in the hut, bye now.